Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we're going to talk about a fun Southern regionalism and the influence of Spanish on English. Last week, I was a guest on the Ann Fisher Show on WOSU to talk about regionalisms, and someone asked about a particular kind of phrase you hear in the South that uses something called modal auxiliary verbs, and I thought it would be fun to talk about them more here. Today, we'll start with the basics of modals and then talk about that interesting way they're used in Southern American English. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me talk about auxiliary verbs, which also go by the less fancy name of helping verbs. English has only a few helping verbs, and we can divide them into four groups. One group consists of forms of the verb be— am, are, is, was, were, be, being, and been. Another consists of forms of have, have, has, had, and having. A third category of helping verbs is forms of the verb do, do, does, and did. The fourth group, as you may have guessed, consists of the modal auxiliary verbs. But before we talk about them, I should note that be, do, and have aren't always helping verbs. In the sentence, squiggly is running a marathon, the verb is is a helping verb. But in the sentence, squiggly is aardvark's second best friend, it's a linking verb. And you can learn more about linking verbs in the old good versus well episode. In the sentence, aardvark doesn't eat grits and has never wanted to, the verbs doesn't and has are helping verbs. But in the sentence, aardvark does crossword puzzles and has an amazing collection of Rubik's cubes, the verbs does and has are ordinary verbs, or as linguists call them, lexical verbs. The most common ones are will, would, shall, should, can, could, may, might, and must. Modal auxiliary verbs are defective. Yes, that's the actual term, defective. It means they're missing some forms. For example, they don't have third-person singular present tense forms. Or to put it more plainly, sentences like he cans, she mays, and it woulds are ungrammatical. They also don't have infinitive forms. So even though it would make sense, a sentence such as they seem to should practice more is ungrammatical. Another way in which modal auxiliaries differ from lexical verbs is that their past tense forms usually don't show past time. In fact, you might not have even realized that some modal verbs are actually past tense forms. I didn't until I started taking an interest in grammar. Will, shall, can, and may are present tense forms. 
The corresponding past tense forms are would, should, could, and might. Must doesn't have a separate past tense. And of all the modal past tenses, the only one that's used very much to refer to past time is could, as in, when I was in high school, I could bench press 300 pounds. Instead of showing past time, past tense modals typically perform one of two other functions. One of these functions is called modal remoteness, which is a technical term for unlikelihood. This is what you get in conditional sentences such as, if I won the lottery, I could start a new business. Even outside conditional sentences, past tense modals show this kind of remoteness. For example, telling someone she would help you suggests that you just need to give her the word, whereas she will help you means it's as good as done. In a more specific kind of modal remoteness, the past tense of modal auxiliaries can show politeness. If you're a native English speaker, you may have a gut feeling that it's more polite to ask someone, could you do me a favor, than can you do me a favor. It sounds a little less pushy. That's because the past tense could presents the scenario of someone doing you a favor as less likely than the present tense can does. It shows that you're not assuming the person is just naturally going to do you a favor, and in this way, it conveys politeness. Aside from modal remoteness, the other function that modal past tenses perform is backshifting, or as it's sometimes known, sequence of tenses. Suppose Squiggly says to Aardvark, I may go skiing in November. If Aardvark is talking to Fenster about Squiggly later, he might say, Squiggly said he might go skiing in November. The modal verb may gets put into the past tense might, not to indicate past time or show modal remoteness, but just to match the past tense verb said. Lexical verbs can backshift too. If Aardvark tells Squiggly, you are my second best friend, and Squiggly tells Fenster about it later, he might say, Aardvark said I was his second best friend, using was just to match the past tense verb said. In addition to may, might, can, could, will, would, shall, should, and must, there are a few fringe members of the family of modal auxiliaries. One of them is ought which is different from the others because it's the only modal verb that takes an infinitive. So you can say, we must go, or we should go, but if you use ought, it's we ought to go. Even further out on the fringe are some archaic uses of need and dare, as in, silly people need not apply, and how dare you speak to me that way. Finally, let's talk about the use of modals that, according to the Yale Grammatical Diversity Project, is associated with Southern American English, as well as a few other varieties. It's called the double modal, or the multiple modal, and appears in sentences such as, we might could help you, and you might should apologize to him. The problem isn't that these sentences don't make sense. Even if you wouldn't say these sentences yourself, you can tell that they mean the same thing as, we might be able to help you, and maybe you should apologize to him. But in standard English, even though other helping verbs can follow a modal, modals themselves can't. 
Although double modals certainly aren't standard English, and I don't recommend them in formal nonfiction writing, in the dialects where they're used, they're subject to the same kind of unspoken rules of grammar as any other kind of construction. For example, in a paper titled, We Might Should Oughta Take a Second Look at This, a syntactic reanalysis of double modals in Southern United States English, Daniel Hasty summarized earlier research on double modals and noted that only may, might, and must are used as the first modal in a double modal. In addition, citing this previous research, he described some restrictions on how you form questions with double modals. So to make a question out of the sentence, you might could go to the store for me, speakers of dialects with double modals will accept could you might go to the store for me and might could you go to the store for me, but not might you could go to the store for me. So even though double modals may sound strange to you if you don't live in the South, in the communities that use them, double modals still follow specific grammar rules. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent writer and consultant specializing in language and grammar and a member of the Reynoldsburg, Ohio School Board. You can search for him by name on Facebook or find him on Twitter as Literal Minded and on his blog at literalminded.wordpress.com. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then with phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar? That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time.
Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Each year from September 15th to October 15th, we celebrate National Hispanic Heritage Month. This month recognizes the cultures, histories, languages, and contributions of those whose ancestors came from Spain, Mexico, Latin America, and the Caribbean. This observance began in 1968 as Hispanic Heritage Week under President Johnson and was expanded to a month-long celebration by President Reagan in 1988. To commemorate this upcoming National Hispanic Heritage Month, let's take a look at how Spanish has influenced the English we speak in the U.S. Some of these influences may seem obvious, but some you may never have thought about. First, it's important to understand the scope of the Spanish language. Spanish is one of the major Romance languages, or those derived from Latin. It's spoken by 559 million people across the world, 460 million of whom are native speakers, meaning Spanish is their first language. Of all the world's languages, Spanish has the second largest number of native speakers, behind only Mandarin Chinese. So it's only natural that Spanish influence can be heard in many languages all over the world, especially English. This influence is particularly evident in U.S. English because of the colonization of large parts of the Americas from the late 15th to early 19th centuries. During the 1800s, as the colonizers moved westward, much of the land belonging to Mexico, namely Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, California, Nevada, and Utah, became part of the United States. Naturally, these settlers began to borrow words from the Spanish that was spoken there. With the Spanish-American War of 1898 and Puerto Rico becoming a U.S. territory in 1917, even more Spanish words found their way into the English spoken in the United States. Today in the U.S., 13% of people speak Spanish at home, making it the most common language spoken besides English. In fact, the U.S. has the second-largest number of Spanish speakers in the world, behind only Mexico. The U.S. Census Department estimates that by 2050, one in three people in the U.S. will speak Spanish, including bilingual English speakers. So now let's talk about how Spanish has influenced U.S. English. The most common way is through borrowing words. James D. Nickel, a Canadian author, book reviewer, blogger, and columnist, is quoted as saying, quote, We don't just borrow words. On occasion, English has pursued other languages down alleyways to beat them unconscious and rifle their pockets for new vocabulary, unquote. I should point out that this quotation has been shortened because of its colorful nature. What Nickel was trying to say is that English loves to steal words from other languages and make them its own. And because of the things we've already mentioned, that has made U.S. English and Spanish very close friends. 
The many words borrowed from Spanish can be divided into a handful of categories. First, who can resist Taco Tuesday? Most of us recognize words for Mexican food and drink, including chorizo, taco, enchilada, chalupa, tequila, margarita, daiquiri, and mimosa. Suddenly, I'm hungry. (laughs) The U.S. also has many Spanish place names, like Arizona, meaning arid zone in Spanish. Colorado, meaning red for the red mountains found there. Nevada, meaning snow-covered. Los Angeles, meaning angels. Santa Barbara, or St. Barbara. San Antonio, or St. Anthony. El Paso, meaning pass or passage. And Albuquerque, after a town in Spain. There are also lots of miscellaneous Spanish words, many of which come from the settlers' new life in the U.S. Southwest, that have become very well-known in U.S. English, including plaza, patio, rancho, conquistador, cafeteria, pronto, siesta, adobe, vigilante, macho, fiesta, piñata, rodeo, bronco, burro, and mosquito. Some other borrowed words you may not be as familiar with are derecho, literally meaning straight and referring to severe winds and thunderstorms that can cause straight-line damage. El Nino and La Nina, literally little boy and little girl, referring to warm and cool phases of a recurring climate pattern across the tropical Pacific. Guerrilla, meaning literally little war, referring to a person who carries out irregular warfare. Incommunicado, from incommunicado, with one M, referring to being out of communication or out of touch. Junta, from juntar, meaning to join, referring to a council or committee for political or governmental purposes. Aficionado, from afición, meaning affection, referring to a fervent fan or devotee. Bodega, originally a storehouse for wine, referring to an unusually small grocery store in an urban Hispanic area. Quinceañera, from quince, meaning 15, referring to a celebration for a girl turning 15. And Desperado, from desesperado, meaning desperate, referring to a violent or bold criminal, particularly in the Wild West. Next, the Spanish suffix ista is used in English to indicate a follower or devotee of something or someone. It's used for nouns and adjectives in Spanish, but almost always for nouns in English, such as machista, fashionista, modernista, and barista. And now I want a latte. This suffix has also been used to refer to fans of political figures or candidates, like fidelista, a follower of the late Fidel Castro, Putinista, Trumpista, Clintonista, and Bernista, a follower of Bernie Sanders. Finally, some borrowed words have been adapted to English pronunciation and spelling. English is famous for doing that, too, to make words fit into its speaking and writing patterns. Notice again that many of these come from Western life. Some examples are Huscao, from the Spanish Juzgado or Huscao, literally courthouse, but meaning jail because they were often in the same location. Chaps, short for chapareras. Buckaroo from vaquero, meaning cowboy. Lasso from lazo, with a Z, meaning ribbon or loop. And lariat from la riata, meaning cord or rope. Now, English is certainly not the only language that borrows from others. Many words that English has borrowed from Spanish originally came from other American Indian languages spoken by native populations who were conquered by the Spanish. 
One of those languages, Nahuatl, which has been spoken in central Mexico since at least the 7th century. Some of the words borrowed from Spanish via Nahuatl are chocolate, tamale, chipotle, guacamole, coyote, mesquite, chili, and tomato. Spanish has had a heavy influence on the English we speak in the U.S., and it's becoming more and more important to our culture, business, and communication every day. So take the time to learn some Spanish. You probably already know more than you think. That segment was written by Susan K. Herman, former editor, language analyst, and language instructor for the U.S. government. Finally, I have a family-like story from Gia. My name is Gia, and I'm originally from Colorado. I have a family story that originated with my generation of my family. When I was younger, my father, Mike, dated a woman who had two children of her own. Over the years, her children started affectionately calling my dad Nickel. And because I was young when they started dating, I picked up this nickname as well, although for some reason, my brother never did. So our father had this penchant for getting into some pretty interesting and frustrating situations. Maybe it was because of his super laid back attitude. Maybe the universe just had it out for him. But throughout his life, he had quite a few interesting tales to tell. So many, in fact, and with such regularity that when he would start to tell his latest story, we'd all kind of start rolling our eyes and ask, oh boy, is this another Mickle story? So that's how our family started. My father passed away last year, but this phrase lives on in our family. Anytime we start to tell some slightly unbelievable tale of a simple act gone inexplicably wrong, we preface it with, so this is a nickel story. And that's our family act. Thanks so much for your fabulous podcast. I really enjoy it. And I look forward to all the new episodes. Have a great day. Thanks, Gia. Your father sounds like fun. And what a great way to remember him. Thanks for calling. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. And our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings, whose favorite new activity is country line dancing. And she's on the hunt for a good country bar that teaches dances she doesn't know. That sounds like fun. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life. 
which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.